Let's look to our Lord in prayer. So now, Father, we're thanking you for these minutes you give us. And this is where we get our marching orders. And this is where we recalibrate. And this is where we begin to get a greater sense of direction. Our spiritual GPS gets set. As we try to figure out how do we go from where we are to where we need to be. It comes from your word. It doesn't come from a pastor's opinions. It comes from your word. It doesn't come from the culture. It comes from your word. So your word matters. And so, Father, this morning as we now explore your word, speak to our hearts. And with that in mind, Father, warm these hearts. Engage these minds. Shape these wills. As again now, Father, we've come here to see Jesus, him only. Praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. I am captured by the way in which the Apostle Paul continuously connects teachings regarding the heart. My mind went back to a scene from Zorba the Greek. One day, when I was a child, an old man took me to his knee and placed his hand on my head as, as though we, he were giving me his blessing. Alexis, he said, I'm going to tell you a secret. You're too small to understand, but you will understand when you are bigger. Listen, little one. Neither the seven stories of heaven nor the seven stories of earth are enough to contain God. Yet God can reside in one's heart. So be very careful, Alexis, and may my blessing go with you, Alexis. Never wound another one's heart. The heart's very important to the Apostle Paul. He bookends his teachings that we're exploring this morning with the idea of heart. And he had done the very same thing in Acts chapter 4, verses 1, down through verse 18. Because in chapter 4, verse 1, he said, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. And again, in verse 16 of that fourth chapter, he would say, So we do not lose heart. And we've oftentimes said, The heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. Once again now, the Apostle Paul is going to bookend. Just as he did in chapter 4, he's going to do again now in chapter 6 on into chapter 7, because he's going to say in verse 11, We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, our heart, Greek word cardia, we get cardiology from it. Our cardia is wide open. But now take into account, Zorba the Greek, how do we approach it this way with regard to the fact that many of us come here this morning with wounded hearts? And how does one go about taking a wounded heart and developing a widened heart? 
the Apostle Paul has been wounded. There's been accusations made against him. We're not valid, not true. But he doesn't allow for his heart to be restricted. It doesn't become constricted. Rather, what he's doing now, and he's modeling for us this very principle, in the midst of woundedness, simultaneously, there is a wideness. We've spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. In return, I speak as to children. Widen your hearts also. So what I want to do with you now, in these minutes God gives us to be together, is to explore this whole idea of developing a widened heart even though you might be coming into this service with a wounded heart. How do we go about doing that? There's three distinctives here in this passage I want to draw out for us this morning. The first comes out of verse 14 through the first part of verse 16, that with hearts wide open to God and each other, I want you to first note with me the command God issues to us. It starts off with these words in verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now the Apostle Paul at this point is writing to believers when he says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And as we know from the book of Acts, that there was a scene in Acts in which the Apostle Paul was ministering in the region of the synagogue. And while ministering in the region of the synagogue, he was ministering to people who would obviously know their Old Testament Jewish people. He's going to now get the Gentiles up to speed, so to speak. And in Deuteronomy chapter 22, we find these words, You shall not sow your vineyard with two kinds of seed, lest the whole yield be forfeited. The crop that you have sown, the yield of the vineyard, you shall not plow an ox and a donkey together. That's where the Apostle Paul is extracting this principle. You shall not wear cloth of wool and linen mixed together. Now, what was he illustrating here with this command? From the Old Testament, what he was saying was that just as the Jews would be going into the land of Canaan, and they were not to allow the mixture to become a fixture in their own spiritual sense of things. They were to maintain a sense of distinctiveness within that culture. And so utilizing now farming illustrations, the Apostle Paul pulls out that idea from the Old Testament, and here you have it at this moment. Do not be unequally yoked, with unbelievers. And I began to think about that. Back in the days in which we lived in New England, Pam and I went to visit a setting where they were offering a lot of insights into some of the early tools that were used by the settlers. There was a yoke there. I still remember it. And I remember a man standing behind this. He'd been fashioning the yoke. 
and began to give some insights, lessons, understanding into this whole matter of the yoke. And he reminded us that you had to have equally yoked animals in order to be productive. Animals with opposite natures simply could not be yoked together to be productive. You couldn't take two different animals and put them under the same yoke because one might experience the natural fit of the yoke, but the other animal, it would be an unnatural fit. It would irritate the skin. It would cause that animal then to become somewhat defiant in its relationship to the one that was plowing the crops. Two different types of animals would begin to conflict and move in different directions rather than going in the direction that the farmer meant for the oxen to move. And furthermore, they would begin to have tension with one another as well. And furthermore, yet, they would move at different speeds, different paces. Now, God knows what he's doing here with this illustration. We would eventually make our way to Northfield, Massachusetts, where we stood at the burial site of D.L. Moody. And after having been in the chapel where Moody had ministered, and I pondered where F.B. Meyer had shared God's word in that setting as well. I remembered the story that F.B. Meyer told when visiting Moody at Northfield, Massachusetts, and Moody showing Meyer a team of oxen, said that whenever one of those oxen was being yoked in, the other which might be on the far side of the farmyard, would come trotting up, stand beside the other one, until it was yoked in also. Not true with the other animals, but he noted it was true with that ox. It was meant to be yoked with a fellow ox. Now, God understands this, and so he's offering the illustration of this, and it's rooted in your Deuteronomy 22, 9 through 11 account. So what he's telling you and telling me is that in this culture of inclusiveness, in this culture of tolerance, we are left with a tremendous challenge on our hands. If you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, but how do we handle this command? Do not be unequally yoked. What he does then at this point, and it's brilliant, and gifted teachers do this, is that they offer a series of questions to get the person thinking. And in this case, there are five rhetorical questions that build off of one another until you get to the point where it climaxes, and you ask yourself, and why? The first question, what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fascinates us is that this, as well as all the other questions, takes two extremes and puts them side by side and asks us now, practically speaking, how would this work itself out? Now, it's an interesting thing because so many times then, Christians might be able, 
prone to say, well, then that degree requires some kind of separation. But then you're put in the situation of Jesus at the dinner table with people that the Pharisees called tax collectors and sinners. And the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to him, not pulling away from him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners. That's their take of what a sinner is. Eats with them. And what fascinates me all the more is that the Greek word for Pharisee is to separate. And here is Jesus, and what he is able to do at this point is to be able to distinguish between fellowship and friendship. He understood what it meant to be equally yoked, and that has to do with the whole realm of biblical fellowship, what we share in common with one another. We are saved by grace through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so now, you have to distinguish between fellowship and friendship at that point. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What Jesus illustrates for you and illustrates for me, it's not isolation from, it's insulation through life. Not isolation from this world. It's insulation through this world. You take now the second question. Or what fellowship has light with darkness? There's your Greek word, koinonia, standing out. And it takes the two extremes of light and darkness, juxtaposes them with the width, and asks, and how would that coexist? You ever been to the Mammoth Cave in Kentucky? Hmm. You know where I'm going. Don Acock tells of his visit there. Twice we've gone into the largest cavern, several hundred feet underground, and the guide points out the extensive system of electric lights in the cave, and then after a warning, shuts them off. The darkness is so thick, total, it's disconcerting. I've heard of darkness so complete you cannot even see your hand in front of you or your face, of your face. But that was the only time I ever experienced it. And after a few seconds of this complete blackout, the guide lights one match. And one tiny match can light up a cavern of thousands of square feet. The believer's called to be a light in this world. Not to blow out the candle, but to hold up this candle in the midst of the darkness of life itself and allow for people to be able to make a distinction. Now, with this command that's before us, what God is doing is that he is challenging Christians to be distinguishable. Stand out, not blend in. Using the Israelites in the land of Canaan as an example. And so now you and I ask ourselves in our work settings, 
in our extended family gatherings, in the whichever town or city you're in, am I distinguishable? What is it that sets me apart? Understanding it's not isolation from, it's insulation through. Even though my values might be different than theirs, my presence is significant to them because they need to be able to see the difference. What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? The third, what accord has Christ with Belial? Now, what's interesting about that third word, accord, within the series of questions, is that we get the word, the Greek word, symphony from it. And in this culture of a cacophony, where everything seems to be bouncing off one another, off of each and everything, what God is saying here is that when you put together believers, there ought to be harmony, not disharmony. Unity, not cacophony, there is this accord because we find ourselves distinguished by what matters most. A relationship with God through Jesus Christ, despite different personalities, despite different degrees of education, despite various experiences in life, we are drawn together, we are yoked together by what matters most. And the challenge in this culture is that people are trying to yoke themselves together over matters that don't matter most. And then wonder why such a fragmented culture and why there's such fragmented relationships and why people are pulling away from each other as they do. You see. But he now leads us to this fourth question. What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever Well, we share the gospel with them, but we don't find ourselves sharing in the gospel with them because they have not yet come to know Jesus as Lord and as Savior. And now he brings it to his climax. And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? Now you've got to understand that where he is writing... He is writing to Corinthian people who are positioned among Greek idols. Now, some of our family members, we are, we are heading northward towards Thessaloniki in Greece. And lo and behold, what I find is that our tour guide points upward towards Mount Olympus. And she says, there's where Zeus resides. And in the very next breath, she's talking about Jesus Christ and the Apostle Paul and what he had to write about Jesus. I thought this is incredibly fascinating because she's unfolding for us what the Apostle Paul is describing here. What in essence does this mean? What agreement has the temple of God with idols for we are the temple of the living God? Which means, then, that your body is the place where God and his spirit resides. Listen, Alexis. Neither the seven stories of heaven nor the seven stories of earth are enough to contain God. Yet God can reside within one's heart. So be careful, Alexis. 
may my blessing go with you, never to wound another's heart. And now the Apostle Paul, in a highly inclusive, highly tolerant culture like that of Greece, reinvests 18 months of his time to teach God's word, is able to widen his heart in the midst of the woundedness of his own heart and inform you and me and challenge you and me with hearts wide open to God and each other. You first note the command God issues to us about this whole matter of yoking. Not isolation from, but insulation through the matters of life. Now you're ready. You and I are ready for the second distinctive of how you cultivate a widened heart. And it comes out of the second part of verse 16 on into chapter 7, verse 1, that with hearts wide open to God and each other, note second of all with me, the promise God provides for us. And here it comes. And again, he's going to draw from the richness of the Old Testament when he says... I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. The most important teaching in the book of Exodus that God would give in Exodus 29 at that point to the new nation of Israel is that God had come to dwell among them, to literally tabernacle with them. Because here we find the connection with the tabernacle when Moses wrote, there at the entrance, now referring to God, I will meet with you and speak to you. And you're pondering how the sinless one would find a sense of wanting to dwell among the sinful ones. But it was not isolation from, it was insulation through. And he uses the tabernacle as the illustration as he would go on to say at this point, I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God and they will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. And this is known as the triad of promise. I will be your God. You will be my people. And I will dwell in the midst of you. And then you march through the Old Testament on into the New. And you find in John chapter 1, verse 14, And the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And now I'm thinking about how God was willing to interact with humanity and deal with the whole matter of his presence, not isolation from, but insulation through, so that you and I might be able to experience the sum total of what this means for God to reside within our hearts, which means then that we've got stretched out hearts, widened hearts, even though they might simultaneously be wounded hearts. Saturday nights are, in my estimation, sacred time for senior pastors. It's where, it's where the connecting of all aspects of life come together in prayerful time. I'm reading the scriptures, I'm memorizing final phrases, and simultaneously, yep, checking the news. Back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And I'm pondering the death of John McCain. And how the coming days are going to seize the imagination, the attention of the nation. 
And I'm pausing as I'm thinking about that service that will be conducted in his honor. And my mind goes then to a, a passage of scripture that I typically read in funeral right before I speak. And ponder how that ties together with what we're covering here. Because in Revelation chapter 21, verse 3, John says, And I heard a voice, a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God, the tabernacling place of God, is with men. He will dwell, literally tabernacle, with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And when you and I have a great sense of the threefold, three-step, three-degree emphasis of this promise, I will be your God, you will be my people, and I will dwell, literally tabernacle, in the midst of you. Combine that with the fact that not only in the Old Testament, Moses went to God where God tabernacled with the people, and Jesus came and tabernacled among the people, but with the Holy Spirit, God has come to tabernacle within you. In the Old Testament, they went in to see God. God has come in to tabernacle with you. I will make my dwelling and my tabernacle among them, walk among them. They will be their God. I will be their God. They should be my people. Therefore, he's got to therefore. You're wondering, well, what do I do with that idea? Here's what he wants you and me to do. Now, not isolation, but definitely insulation. Go out from their midst. Be separate from them, says the Lord God. Touch no. Would you mark what comes next in your Bible? We'll get there again in a second. No unclean thing. It's going to reappear. This whole matter of the cleanliness factor. Go out from their midst, be separate from them. Touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you, I will be a father to you. You shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. And then in chapter 7, verse 1, he brings it home. Since we have these promises, you're noticing the promise, the threefold promise that God provides. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves. So take the word cleanse of chapter 7, verse 1, draw a line back to the touch no unclean thing of verse 17. Now you ask yourself the question, what can I learn from the Older Testament with regard to that teaching, touch no unclean thing, because God in that early stage of humanity's experience with history still had to learn basic hygiene matters. The physical was to illustrate the spiritual. And now, as I got to that point in my studies this week, pulled off the section in my medical side of the library of the history of medicine, a book, and I went to a particular chapter about Philip 
Zimmelweis, and some of you know the story. For in 1844, he graduated from medical school, but was overwhelmed with the fact that as he began to practice medicine, he found that in the whole matter of maternity issues, to the point where children were being delivered, there was an extraordinarily high percentage of mortality for both the mother and the child, and wondered and continued to wonder how this could be overcome. The book, the history book on medicine, tells us that with cold logic, Zimmelfeis saw there was an answer to this question. He concluded that childbed fever was contagious. A contagious disease is one, obviously, that can be transmitted to another. He had a friend who had acquired the disease from a corpse. And he came to the realization that these young medical doctors were, were delivering babies after having handled corpses. The other professors that he interacted with disagreed with him. But the doctors didn't bother to examine this whole matter of cleanliness. Quoting from the book now, a doctor might leave the morgue after dissecting a corpse, rush to the operating room for surgery, then go straight to the wards. And during this time, he neither washed his hands nor changed his blood-stained coat. And while the younger doctors prided themselves upon their blood-encrusted examination coats, it made them feel as though they were more experienced, what Dr. Zemmelfeis came to the conclusion of that that was the contaminant. And so finally, when the rubber met the road, as he stood in a powerful lecture moment before the medical students, he ended with this dramatic statement, young doctors, wash your hands. Afterward, a professor who snapped hearing that said, what you've just said has no medical value. We've got to watch our budgets. There's no money in the budget for soap and chlorine water. Zemmelfeis went out of his way to help finance the whole matter of the purchase of chlorine and the likes, the soap and the likes, and brought to the forefront the whole danger of the contaminant as it relates to the human body. The physical illustrates the spiritual. This is what God was doing in the Old Testament with the Israelites. So when he would say, touch no unclean thing, he understood the whole value of hygiene, takes it together and couples it with the spiritual principles of chapter 7, verse 1. We have these promises. Beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body, spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. And now I will be your God. You will be my people. I will dwell in the midst of them. And he wipes away the tears as he fulfills the promise. Which leads us now to the third distinctive of how you develop a widened heart simultaneously with a wounded heart. That with hearts wide open to God and each other, 
Note the joy that God instills within us. You pick it up in verse 2. You carry on. You keep looking for the cardia, the heart. Be a cardiologist here. Make room in your hearts for us. We've wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. Why does he say this? Not once, not twice, but three times. He's got a wounded heart. He's been falsely accused. He's been confronted. He's been challenged. He has been misinterpreted. And now he goes out of his way after this rich teaching he's delivered to you and me to make room in your hearts for us. Give me another opportunity. Give me a second chance. We've wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We've taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our, where? Our karya, in our hearts. And now I love what comes next, don't you? And this is rich, and it ties together what he had said previously. To die together and to live together. And you draw back up to the beginnings where we were trying to pull together things that were not meant to be together. Righteousness and lawlessness, light and darkness, Christ Belial, believer, unbeliever, this whole matter of the temple of God versus idolatry. And now he gives you a true sense of what togetherness is to be all about here. You're in our hearts to die together, to live together, which is the beauty of the local church because the way in which things are done when it honors God is that we live together, we die together. There's this sense of togetherness because of the equally yoked nature of it all. There's a richness here. And now you find that even though you've got a wounded heart, you've got an ever-increasing wideness of heart, and the joy is just simply flowing out of that heart. I'm acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort in all our affliction. He says, ours, not merely yours. I am overflowing with joy. And now you pull those three distinctives together. And if you come here this morning, and maybe 2018 has been one tough year, and you've had one after another challenge when it comes to the relationships of life. Remember this, Alexis. I'm going to tell you a secret. You're too small to understand now. But you understand when you are bigger. Listen, little one. Listen. Neither the seven stories of heaven nor the seven stories of earth are enough to contain God. But God can reside within one's heart. So be very careful, Alexis. May my blessing go with you. Never to wound another's heart. Widen your heart, Alexis. Widen it. Let's stand together.
we can come pre-defensive into various relational settings. Constrict our hearts, shield our hearts, guard our hearts. There's the threat of vulnerability if we widen our hearts. Few of us look for wounded heart experiences. But there's Jesus at the cross. And we see the woundedness of Jesus, the nails and the hands, the crown of thorns on the head. And yet we see the wideness of the heart of Jesus. And we take into account that both can operate together. So, Father, if there's anyone today or in any of these services that is so prone to constrict the heart in relating to believers as well as unbelievers, I pray now we'll rethink. pray now we'll reevaluate. And there'll be a new opening that in the midst of the woundedness, there's a wideness because that's where true ministry happens. And for this, we give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.